this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is sponsored by Oxford University Press. Voting is one of the most important actions you can exercise as a citizen. Be prepared for the upcoming midterm elections with selections from across a spectrum of books, articles, and other media from Oxford University Press. For example, learn about protecting your First Amendment rights in hate or investigate how Facebook might be affecting our democracy in antisocial media. Written by leading experts in their fields, Oxford University Press's content will help you feel well-versed on just about any issue that may be on the ballot in November. Learn more at their Midterm Elections HQ, we'll have a link in the show notes, and build a ballot-ready bookshelf to be a more informed voter. Thanks again to Oxford University Press. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 284, recording on Thursday, October 25th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. We are. We're reunited, and it feels It's been a while. So good. traveling. We had other stuff uh, going on. We're back. You know, it was kind of a slow news week, and Rebecca said, you know, if you've got anything put in the agenda, it's like, it's listener feedback day. I think that's our A block. It's going to be all listener feedback. I'm into feedback. it. You know, we talked about a lot of stuff over the last couple of weeks. Um, a couple of uh, people wrote in to comment as part of you know commenting other th- how much retail talk we've done of late. Mm-hmm. We've always done some, but it has been has I mean between Amazon doing Amazon store things experiments and there's even other stuff that I don't think is even going to make it the gents today. They're trying other clothing related pop up whatever. I don't get the pop up store phenomenon. I feel like back in the in the days of um, my youth. Uh, Pop-up retail stores weren't a thing. Maybe, maybe I, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, outside of the odd Halloween costume store that mm-hmm. like took over an empty storefront, but the idea of a, of a a pop-up store that wasn't just sort of a hermit crab filling in this empty shell for a little bit of time is super interesting to me. But Indigo's doing stuff. Barnes and Noble's doing stuff. You know, independent bookstores are doing stuff. It does feel like, again, even even within the tumultuous time of the last 10 or 15 years of book retail, there's even a lot more going on now. So it's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it is a really interesting shift. And I hadn't noticed until the listeners pointed out that that's really where we've been going. Like, of course, you know, we notice, oh, we're just talking about Barnes & Noble all the time. Mm-hmm. But there's not been a lot of interesting stuff or ch- big changes coming out of Publishers, you know, they no. haven't. There's not like the invention of ebooks again, or <laughs> that weird couple of years that we spent where everyone was trying to come up with what kind of ebook related app they could create. It seems like that age has or a bundle, right? Hope, like we right, did some people bundling. were trying to do. Remember that Harper Collins? If you printed out the receipt and you took it to whatever, you could get right. the thing. Like there was some yeah. of that. There was a whole bunch of. There was this big experimentation period. It seems that that has cooled off. Um, we mm-hmm. won't take ourselves all the way into the ways that that's probably related to cough ebook pricing and uh and the return or shift back to preferences right. for print books right. but, but yeah we're talking about bookstores a lot and talking about bricks say, and mortar baby yeah I, i'm kind of into it it's yeah, it, it's at least you know nice to be thinking about what are the spaces that people go into mm-hmm. to buy books and what is that telling us about where we are right now it's kind of fun 
Yeah, let's do our uh, let's do a sponsor, then we'll get into it. So sure. you want to tell me about our, our next sponsor? Oh, I've just been waiting to. Our first sponsor yes. this week is What Would Cleopatra Do by Elizabeth Foley and Beth Coates. Uh, it's irreverent, inspirational, and a visual delight. What Would Cleopatra Do shares the wisdom and advice passed down from not just Cleopatra, but Queen Victoria, Dorothy Parker, and 47 other heroines from past eras on how to handle an array of problems women have encountered throughout history and that we still face today. Here are Cleopatra's thoughts on sibling rivalry, Mae West on positive body image, Frida Kahlo on finding your style, Catherine the Great on dealing with gossip, and that is just listing a few. The book features whimsical illustrations by artist Bijou Carmen. Again, it's called What Would Cleopatra Do? It's a distinctive, witty, gift-worthy tribute to history's, to history's outstanding women. If you are starting to think about your holiday wish list and your holiday gift list, uh, this would be a great time to get going. Pick up this book that is good for, you know, addressing dilemmas like career planning, female friendship, loneliness, financial management, political engagement, you know, the full spectrum of what it is to be a woman in the world today with wisdom from heroines of the past. So that is What Would Cleopatra Do by Elizabeth Foley and Beth Coates. We'll have a link in the show notes, or you can pick it up wherever books are sold, you know, like in those bricks and mortar places we were just talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So we asked, uh, so we're going to run through some stuff where we explicitly asked about, you know, what people had experienced with it. Maybe we didn't. And then some others where we're always open to feedback podcast at bookride.com. First up, James Patterson, bookseller grants. We asked, if you knew someone who had received one of these bookseller grants, you you had gotten them yourself, you know, people who had gotten them checks, uh, let us know. Had a couple of people say that they have themselves as booksellers had gotten grants, nice, and had friends had fellow booksellers had. So it's not like it's not like a lottery ticket situation where if you've won the lottery, you probably don't know someone who else has won the lottery. It seems like, you know, if you're in the bookseller world. You will you will know someone who's won one of these. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds like from cool. the feedback, which is cool. I think that I think that's one question I had about them. I, mean, I have a lot of questions about this particular bookseller grant. Some of them are charitable, and some of them aren't. But one of the 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 more um, genuous questions was how much of it is like a lightning strike, right? Mm. Like, is it that sort of a situation? But it sounds like it's it's very much more of a you can reasonably expect that. You may get one of these if you apply over several years, or someone you know, a fellow bookseller, or a friend that's a bookseller in a different store. You know, it's not one of these. Um, uh, there can only be one in any sort of zip code, or you know, like a road scholarship where you take one from each state or something like that. Uh, it's much more prevalent, which is good, and I think should further encourage people to apply. Yes, um, I think the deadline was maybe passed, but mm-hmm. go check it out. If, if otherwise, now maybe if a whole bunch more people apply, it'll become less prevalent. You know, I'm a part of the problem. What can I say, Rebecca? I'm the man. Um, but I thought that was pretty interesting. Is that you know a, a good, a seemingly good percentage of people get these bookseller grants? So I thought that was fascinating as well. Um, let's where do we go next? Uh, let's do a little potpourri before we get to the meteor kind of stuff. Uh, waterproof Kindle. Paper white feedback. Amanda and I talked mm. about that on last week's show. You weren't around for that. No, I just tuned in for the part about how birds aren't real. Oh, yeah. They, well, <laughs> look, do we want everyone to know? Those who know, know. And those who don't, don't know. Uh, that's where we are with the birds aren't real. Hashtag. Um, our takeaway is how boring ebook reader hardware in general is because, yes. you know, this has been a long time coming for the Kindle Paperwhite, which is far and away Kindle's best sell or Amazon's best selling Kindle. Um, 
Other than that, what do you want from an e-reader? Not that much, it turns out. I mean, Amanda and I were having trouble thinking of what killer feature could you add to an, a dedicated ebook reader that would make us more interested? The answer was make it a phone that I already have kind of, right? Like that was sort of where I landed. A lot of feedback a lot, a, along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, several people wrote in to say, hey, dummies, you know that Kobo did a waterproof e-reader a while back to which I replied, hey, dummy, listen to our old shows. Rebecca and I talked about <laughs> Kobo's e-book. Re- I didn't say that. I said it I was say, oh, good, good. So now we're just slinging dirt in both directions. Yeah, it's, just, it's, just, it's just dummy, dummy talk back and forth. Uh, no, you are. I'm not, but you are kind of situation. We did talk about that. Um, also, the Kindle Oasis was already waterproof. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive. The Kindle Paperwhite getting um, the waterproof feature is kind of like a Honda Civic getting anti-lock brakes or you know airbags yeah, all the way around. It's yeah. the most popular. It, it, it affects the most people. So while it's not the first, fanciest, whatever, this is the, the daily driver of most people who read e-books on a Kindle, on an e-book reader of any device, Read it on a Kindle Paperwhite. Mm-hmm. That's just the truth. Um, so it's notable for that reason. It's also non-notable for that reason, which is now that now that the Paperwhite is waterproof. What kind else of, is there? Kind of the last major feature <laughs> request people were asking for, right? I mean, yeah. if there were some sort of more tablet-like device, Kindle, that wasn't a tablet with all the you know, the heaviness and the expense <laughs> and the not the battery life, I don't know how you do it's that. It's a some tablet, sort of, but it's not a tablet. <laughs> It's a dog, but it's a Schrodinger's cat. tablet. Yeah, um, but if if color e ink was ever a thing where you got the wonderful battery life you get out of e ink displays mm. and the lightweightness of that, maybe that would be interesting. But at that point, like th- to jump, is there a middle ground between a good paper white and a good iPad? There's not much middling there, yeah, as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I think agree. it's tough. I think it's hard to imagine what that next step would be, which means it'll be interesting to watch what Amazon does. Does the does yeah. Kindle development get to basically go into maintenance mode, for lack of a better term here, where, all right, like the last thing people really like, is the Kindle feature complete now that yeah. it's now that it's waterproof? Um, will they mm-hmm. just continue to make new ones and to refine things or will there be some you know, additional bells or whistles that they right. dream up to try to make it, you know, more enticing to someone to upgrade or to try to grab that customer who hasn't bought a paper white yet, mm-hmm. but maybe this new bell or whistle would get them. I think that's going to be really interesting to watch. I think they'd be smart. Like if I were in charge of that product development, I think I would kind of hang out there in maintenance mode for a little while yeah. and be like, you know, we don't need to keep adding things just to keep adding things. Um, the waterproofness seems to be that last, you know, big nail uh, to have hit. Could you make them cheaper over time? I guess right. would be interesting yeah, yeah. too. If this was a $49 device, does that, I mean, we know how pricing works. Um, that would certainly be interesting to think about. I wonder, again, you and I speculate about a lot of uh, statistics we will never know for a variety of reasons. <laughs> and this is one I don't think we talked about before. Forgive me if, I, if I'm repeating something we said six years ago. And I can't <laughs> remember all billion episodes. But what percentage of Kindle books are read on a phone versus a Kindle, I think, is would be an interesting spread. Like, does Amazon care about Kindles? How much mm, should they care mm-hmm. about Kindles? I'm going to assume that they still care about selling e-books. Right. But do they care if you if you consume it on your phone versus on a Kindle? I don't know. Or be like interesting to know. The, the Kindle app of your iPad. Like, right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does it, how, how, how platform or device or app agnostic, app-nostic, that's Ow. almost a thing, almost I got there, is Amazon, <laughs> or, or is it, for whatever reason, much more desirable for you 
to read the book on your Kindle. I'm guessing if you own a Kindle, you read more Kindle books. But say you own a Kindle and an iPhone with an, with an Amazon app on your iPhone, do they care? For whatever reason, I think that'd be interesting as mm-hmm. well. Because I would assume, or like, do they care enough to try to convert you to buying a yeah. Kindle? Yeah. Also, getting people away from their smartphones is real hard. Like, good luck with that business model. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, don't put down your phone and pick up this clunky other thing that may or may not well, be like, charged. On the know. other hand, maybe that's the angle of like this thing. You know, maybe they sell one that like doesn't have Wi-Fi or something on it. Like this, well, you'd have to have no. Wi-Fi to get the books on it. But like, maybe that's the only thing it could do. And it'd be like, this thing is the no. thing you can read books on. I, I'm not saying it's a good idea, Jeff. But you know, there are those hotels that you pay them oh, extra. No, to hold no. your devices for you, maybe they want to go the route of like, put you don't want to access the internet. Cool, here's the e-reader for people who don't want the internet. Or like those word processors that show that that have digital displays but show like four words at a time and they can't do anything right. else. Like the, the 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 nanny state of digital devices is a super weird, the super weird thing. You know, to it's like this about. is like a slight aside, but the latest iOS update. I don't know if you've put it yeah. on your iPhone. It has a screen time monitor in the. Mm-hmm. in the iOS and you can set it to limit how much time you spend on different apps per day and it will tell you like here's how many notifications you get every day here's how many times you unlock your phone and look at it and but the whole like the nanny state is not actually a nanny state I have discovered because when you hit your time limit like I set one for you know I don't want to look at Twitter for more than 10 minutes total mm-hmm. every day it tells you you've hit your limit but then it is followed by a button that says ignore the limit look for, you like, can fire your nanny Rebecca it's true I, mean, I don't like, know what to tell you ignore yeah. the limit for the day or remind me in 15 minutes like what good is this like lock me out <laughs> or let me all the way in I know it's going to come as a surprise to you and me and everyone else here but generally speaking our problem with these sorts of things is not our device it's us the I problem know. is you well right? no right that's why like I yeah. mean obviously Apple really wants me to use my phone more all of these app developers want me to use my phone more so I understand the functional reasons mm. that those like outs are given of like are you sure maybe you want to hang out on Twitter a little while longer we'll <laughs> remind you in a while like I know that I'm the problem but if the nanny right. state wants to show up like could it actually nanny me for a minute and just not let me how can you be your own nanny that's my next <laughs> self-help book be your own nanny I already wrote down fire your nanny as a show title option. Yeah. What a nanny derived um, title situation. Anyway, may, I don't know. Maybe in a moment of weakness, I would be the person who buys the Kindle. That's like, this is the way to read on your Kindle without having the internet. But then I would just look at, you know, my it's sh- like it's, it's this artisanal e-reader. It's like fine <laughs> Corinthian leather with like a mahogany. It smells back. of rich mahogany. Yeah. You know, all the, all the ta- ta- uh, faces are all, you know, serifs all over the place. I have place. just conveniently forgotten that I could read a bunch of these print books that are in my house and are also not wi capable yeah right you know um i haven't enabled the screen time feature i i think i've talked about when i was gushing Mm -hmm. about my apple watch earlier like i'm really making an effort to keep my phone away from me unless i want to use it for something i have heard i do listen to a couple of tech podcasts where they've done the thing of turning on screen time and then seeing the number and i think that uh, how many times you pick up your phone a day number is a real cold splash of cold water boy it's horrifying yeah, it's the uh, it's the internet version of the picture of Dorian Gray, where like there's 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 a there's an there's a portrait of yourself. Yeah. that you may not want to look at. That's telling you something mm-hmm. about your it life. It is um, horrifying. I thought I was pretty good about it. So if this is what pretty good is, <laughs> I'm terrified yeah. of what it would be like if I spent more time in my phone. The mm-hmm. notifications, like if you text friends a lot, 
the notif- the oh, number of right. notifications per day you get is also really horrifying. Uh, and you're a fairly, I would say you're a fairly robust texter on I, the whole. Yeah, I am a very yeah. robust texter. I think that's true. I think um, mm-hmm. like many of us who live a lot of our lives on the internet, many of the people that I'm close to are not yeah. people that I see every day. <laughs> you, aren't, you aren't close to them, weirdly. Right, yeah. I'm not geographically close to them. And so texting is the, you know, the given option for daily communication um, or a Slack channel like I you know have with my girlfriends but yeah notifications Mm -hmm. man i i I did like this was my fun justification was like well okay the number of times i pick up my phone is not actually that much higher than the number of notifications i get so like Mm. i'm just picking it up to respond to notifications (laughs) but it's sure mm -hmm. it's still a nightmare i'm opening the fridge to get out the carrots (laughs) yeah it's mm That's how it works. It's bad. If come January 1st, I'm on here recommending like tech detox books, you'll all know that it's (laughs) because. Well, I mean, you and I both, as, as, um, uh, I don't know. I guess you would call us interested in our personal improvement, uh, personal oh, yeah, growth, these fair. sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You don't know how bad your problem is unless you have a something to, you know, some sort of measurement. What's get right. measured, what yep. gets managed is true mm-hmm. for business and your personal and life, right? Like yep. whether it's your weight or, you know, your personal finances, things you can attach a number to are easy to track deltas. On the other hand, if you've never looked at the number and you suddenly do, um, oh, a little self-awareness. You, a little future shock is in order. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's gonna, it's gonna happen. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah, yeah. It was a that was a uh, painful moment of realization of what that number is. Yeah. But I think it's cool, and uh, it's been it has been useful for like, all right, extra motivation to like leave the phone when I go on a walk or silence notifications so that I don't hear it every time a text comes in. That kind of thing. Right. It does seem to me that it, over the last few years we've had rumblings about, and I don't think we're quite at the at the um, cresting of the wave yet. But a um, personal reckoning, a cultural a cultural moment where there's a lot of personal reckoning about our relationship with technology, and not even in the the pearl clutching the world is going to end sort of way, but really is like. Is this how I want to live my life? Kind yeah, of way? exactly. In the like, what is really manageable and sustainable yes. and healthy and good for our sanity, mm-hmm. um, I think is is right up there. Um, there's yeah. really, like now that we're down this rabbit hole, I think we should just stay for a minute. There's an interesting study that I read recently that just having a phone like on the table or within eye, yeah. like within eyesight when you're at dinner or having a conversation with people changes the substance and the depth of the conversation because they're like the they don't know that this is the reason, but the reason that the research is sort of generated for like, we can measure this difference in the way that people mm-hmm. communicate when there's a device that you can see. Um, and they were like, probably because you're aware that at any moment there could be an input from that device mm-hmm. that's like, hey, pay attention to me. And you can't go as deep into the discussion with the people who are right there in front of your face. And I think we are going to have a reckoning with that. There are even some restaurants in Richmond now that will do a thing where like, you can give your phones, like put them in a basket and they won't give you your phone through the course of the meal. Or yeah. um, I know groups of friends that all put their phones in the center of the table and whoever reaches for their phone first has to pick up the check, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I'm yeah. headed there. I'm just going to move to the woods, man. <laughs> I, I'm interested in it. I think it's in, I, I definitely having some of this in myself. Like I don't, I have been in the past at points, you know, especially when I'm tired and my kids are really young, the, the, the dad, the parent at the playground looking at Twitter while my kids are off doing something. One, cause I'm, bored i'm tired i'm looking for something to do but you know the truth is i don't want to be that guy right uh i don't i don't want to and i'm you know i've 
made some changes to to prevent that from happening as much as possible. But I think there's a lot of interesting parallels between our relationship with personal technology and the, our and our relationship with food mm. culturally. The 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 era of abundance and whatever else you want to call about food and technology, the omnipresence of it, the the whatever else you want to say about it. I think there's a lot of in like Weight Watchers for digital technology is it, I'm expecting that that's going to happen. Oh, I'm calling it right now. Yes. That is going to happen. Like widespread cultural, like yeah. culturally approved support groups for yes. tech, not addiction per se, but overuse or man, tech management. Right. I think that you're not happy that. with it. Right. And, you know, again, I don't, I'm not going to name anyone names, but I see some people that I know and friends that they have a relationship with their technology and their social media accounts that if I gun to my head, say, do you think that's good for them? I would say, no, again, it's not my life, right. but I'm like, are they happy with this? Are they thinking about it? And I think a lot of people are, I'm super interested to see how this plays out just because it got ramped up so fast. The availability of, you know, it's way different than anything we've else we've seen before As we haven't had time to think about it. This is what we want to do. Forget about all the studies about whether reading is bad, you know, reading is dying <laughs> and the other thing I- I'm talking about. Look, look, I'm about to do my Dr. Phil. Um, no, I mean, you know, like, is this <laughs> what, we, is this what you, you, I don't know. I don't, I can't fix the world, but I can worry about how big of an a-hole I'm being. And I'm like, I, I'm bordering on being an a-hole about this stuff. And if I know it can't just be me, um, that's worried about, it. which is all a way of saying the Kindle paper white is now waterproof. <laughs> and, uh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Let's go to something amazing and delightful. Yes. Which is you, told me this morning that this told me this morning yeah i should um so we asked for uh if anyone was around the short hills new jersey mall and could it was interested in going to take a look at the new indigo store that opened there that would be great amanda and i talked about the opening of it last week so we put out the call then um and we we had several questions that we thought maybe a a rioter on the ground kind of report would answer because we said, and mm-hmm. this was New Jersey blog, I can't remember the name of it. They had a few pictures and it really looked like it was uh, anthropology with some books on tables. And like, where's the bookstore in this bookstore situation? And so I think that was principle among our questions is like, is, is there a, a bunch of books somewhere organized by genre where like, you know, n- normal mental model of a bookstore resides? if that makes sense. Um, and the answer we're thrilled to say... Oh my gosh, it's just the best. <laughs> ...is that it looks that's to be the case. I'm not going to give uh, the full name because I, I didn't yeah. get approval, but Jessica and her partner went to the Short Hills Mall and... And, and the way they, we know they it They took a great. bunch of pictures and they put and. together a slideshow on Google Docs with commentary that's available in the show notes right now that to you can go you. browse and see. It is the best. <laughs> This, I'm so delighted in, by this. In, what, seven years of Book Riot and more than five years of doing this show, this is hands down the gold medal, like, big trophy for for listener feedback, yes. like, above and beyond, and really, like, deeply detailed and fun. Um, they, took, they took so many pictures, and there's so much commentary about, like, here's the special alcove where they sell tea, and it feels like being in a Williams-Sonoma. Yes. And here's the paper shop where they sell stationery, and it's huge, and you can wrap your own gifts in fancy gift wrapping paper, and, like, a photo of the cookbook corner. Mm-hmm. These these are very nice photos. This store looks 
very appealing. Like they have sold me on wanting to make a visit to the cookbook section Mm. at the very least. But if you are listening to this and you are interested in all this retail talk that we have been doing, I think definitely do yourself a favor and click through the amazing slideshow. It is a 16 slide deck um, with pictures. The overall thoughts and conclusions are two pages long of just prose uh, in bullet point form. Thank you so much, uh, Jessica, to you and your your partner for providing the, us with this. Um, I want to summarize for those of you who won't click through that the the points they made. One, I believe the term bougie and then AF, <laughs> for those of you who may know what that means, is the number one bullet point on the first slide. Mm-hmm. And and it appeals, and they liked it. I, I guess that's it. Maybe that's, I'm, I'm bearing the lead. They liked it. They would go back. They they only had 30 minutes till the mall closed, so they, they said they would like to have spent more time there. They would come back, found the whole thing very pleasant. But it is, appeals to an affluent clientele, the kind of a mall, it's an upscale mall. They, they have Prada, Vuitton, Chanel, Burberry down. So it's not a Build-A-Bear, Jamba Juice, Wetzel's Pretzels <laughs> kind of a mall. I really appreciated is, those examples. <laughs> which is a very fluent and late capitalism distinction to make, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of us would understand it. It sounds like it's the kind of mall that Sharifa and I went to to go visit the new Amazon bookstore oh, here in Portland yeah. we did for Annotated that had like a Tesla store, mm-hmm. like two doors down. Um, which I'm going to come back to this in a minute because I think that's I think that's super important for some of the other choices they're able to make about this store. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's split into alcoves. You have to walk through the, the table displays of the home goods to get um, to, the, to the, the book stacks, which is not unlike, you know, in some stores where you have to walk through the – what's the one I'm trying to think of? Uh, don't, I don't know. But you walk through the, the stuff you may not be there for to get the stuff you want to get there for because you're going to pick up a, a, a candle or something on the way there. Um, let's see. What else? The paper shop is their stationary section. Mm-hmm. I think the most, for, for me, the thing I was most interested in is these long tables um, that were meant to sort of sit down and plug in your laptop or read yeah. a book. Yeah, the the like hang out for a while, yeah. uh, the stay a while section as they caption it in the slideshow uh, does look, and it looks very inviting, you know, pull up a stool, charge your laptop, plug your phone in. Uh, she's posing with her California pizza kitchen leftovers, here, <laughs> which is nice. And you do get a, a good sense of what the bookstore or what the department store is like. And it's very clearly, de- it, this looks like a department store. I'm looking at mm-hmm. slide seven, which is showing, um, designer handbags and a big like wall-sized photo of Marilyn Monroe and it looks like walking through a Nordstrom Um, and you wouldn't know from this photo that you were walking through what's traditionally been a bookstore but then they sell Fitbits in other corners and she did note I thought it was great that um in their 30 minutes in the store they didn't see anyone buy books but she did see somebody buy nice silky pajamas (laughs) that's really fast so (laughs) There's so much I want to know. It's like I answered a bunch of questions got answered here, but open. It's like if you open a can of worms and there's a whole bunch of other cans of worms in the can. Worms all the way down. Worms, cans of worms all the way. Down. But like, I don't even know what you call the displays. You know, as as a casual frequenter of um, you know clothing department stores, these sort of knee high 
display tables with luxury handbags on them mm-hmm. are to me a really big signifier. Yes. I don't know I, I don't know how to describe it but like oh that is something they've got down lights like everything's mm-hmm. spot. I think the lighting in this is super fascinating. It is. It, it looks like a photography dis- studio it, like every, it's like a giant photography studio with books and a whole bunch like of goods. It feels like you're supposed it. to feel expensive when you walk yeah. through there. Yeah. There's right. definitely right. a luxury vibe. You know, and that's in this particular mall, you know, as as a longtime New Yorker, there's a lot of there's a lot of tragedy the commons effects of being a New Yorker and having things like this in a New York and especially me in Brooklyn, New York, Manhattan. Mm-hmm. If you have these long there's a reason that the old Barnes and Nobles with a bunch of armchairs don't exist anymore. I'll yeah. be curious to see. And if you people hang out there all day. Um and people who don't have other places to go. They use these places because they're there, which I would totally, I mean, it totally makes sense. But I think one thing that happens, you can have this kind of store in this kind of a mall um, because of what the mall does to prevent people from hanging out all day, where it is, how hard it is to get to. It's not next door to Grand Central Station. I don't think, can you have a store set up this way in Manhattan? I would doubt it very much Mm. because you're going to have people camping out all day. The cafe's coming. But there, there... I guess what I'm running there were I thought this was interesting and I realized as getting through the slide deck and thinking about it writ large this model of a bookstore makes me very sad. Mm. It makes me very sad. You mean um, if this were to be the prevailing model or just the existence well, of this at all? Just just because this kind of store now maybe they're going to have other kinds of format stores that do different things but like this model of print books as being on the same level of Louis Vuitton handbags. There's something about that yeah. that makes me very sad, yeah, I have to say. There's something, I mean, not that capitalism is a, like the capitalism is certainly not a flat level playing right, field. Yeah. Um, so we have the library and then we have various ways that you can purchase books at different price points. But I think that is a really, I hadn't gotten there. Um, mm. I just looked at the slideshow like 20 minutes ago. Uh, so my thoughts are, fresher but yeah but i think it's a really interesting and important way to think about it that bookstores and like it's not what the store is it's what the store contains that means something to us and where what books occupy in our culture and in the like collective imagination and collective consciousness it like that it's just functionally knowledge and information and Mm -hmm. equating access to knowledge and information with access to a new Prada purse or a Chanel Proximity handbag. to this mall, even. Right. Like the ability like of proximity to the mall. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I mean, rich people need to buy books, too. And mm. I get that. And that if you're trying to sell rich people books, you want to do it in a setting where they will feel like rich people who are being catered to and who are willing to pay full price, like full sticker price for the books that one of the notes in the um, wrap up is that all the prices are the MSRP. They didn't see any like grand openings and or discounts or sales, which is also like a, rich Super it's a rich person store situation right like you don't, i didn't even think to ask that i for some reason i just assumed it would have sort of barnes and noble discounting right. model but there, it doesn't but the, appear to have right, any as far that, as I can that, tell. that it's just here's the price and we assume yeah. like you're if you're wandering over into burberry we assume That's that right. you can pay you know the full 28.99 for a new hardcover like it's mm-hmm. it is yeah i feel tricky about it that there's the, obviously these there these customers for books exist as well but there is something that is a little bit squicky about um, about it to me. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's it it makes sense from a trajectory of book sales writ large. Discount buying 
happens online where you don't have to pay for the rent for the Short Hills Mall. I mean, frankly, it's, it's cheaper to sell books online. Um, and then for retail, book retail to exist, it has to be in a place where you can charge full sticker and you get affluent customers. We've talked about this before, another step we'd like to know. Like what's the, med- what's the, the average income of people who live in zip codes with independent bookstores, right? right? You know, we've thought about that. There's a similar phenomenon going there. I think this is just maybe the most overt display that physical bricks and mortar retail for full price paperbacks is a luxury good. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's fine. And because you can get them discount for a lot less, $10 a hardback less, if not more, you can get them from your library. Maybe, maybe it's okay. But that this middle, because, you know, as, as, a, as a kid whose favorite bookstore growing up was a suburban Barnes & Noble, um, or Barnes and Nobles that can fit in different kinds of malls. Mm-hmm. There's Barnes and Nobles that aren't in the most expensive malls. That that those exist. That there's no middle for that, or low end for that, or you know, books deserts are a real thing. Yeah, this is the District One of right. book sales. Yeah, this, this, is the, is, this is District. This is the District One of book retail. Yeah, I think that's right. That this is not new. This notion no. that we, we have moved into a space where. The, the ability to pay full price, and maybe it's always been this way, but paying full price for a new hardcover book is a luxury good. Yeah, um, That's not a new concept, but this is a very overt display and embracing of that concept. Um, and I think that maybe that's what, I don't want to speak for you, but I think that's mm. part of what I'm responding to is like, I don't want books to be presented to the reading public as a luxury good. Like, Mm -hmm. let us not present them as a luxury good just to make rich people feel good about buying them in a beautiful, well-lit store where they can also buy a nice handbag. Like, no shade on you if you can afford to do that. Roll on. But this is not the way that I want to see books positioned in our society. Yeah, and it'd be one thing if we had like a more robust ecosystem, and this was just a, a this was just the canopy of it, right? right? But right, I mean, right now we've got like the apex predators and then the ground, and it's there's something about that I don't particularly like. But on the other hand, it may be exposing. You're sort of intimating this the that this particular phenomenon was just papered over. Excuse the pun. Mm-hmm. By some of the indie bookstore rhetoric we've seen over, yeah, you know, especially yeah. the you've got mail of the you've got mail mode, right? Of save shop around the corner and pay full price versus shopping literally around the other corner <laughs> and getting a discount. Uh, what is that difference really about? You know, what is that difference really about? I think is a super yeah, fascinating that, because angle this, on this does feel to me meaningfully different from the fact that you walk into an independent bookstore and most of the books that you will purchase there will also be full sticker price. Right, right. So but, that's, but maybe it's not, though. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not. But maybe, maybe functionally it's, it's the same right, thing. It's right. just that one has handbags and one doesn't. Yeah, but they're but serving the, the, they're speaking the same language. The, so well, the speak. positioning, I think the positioning is certainly meaning, meaningfully different yeah. in that like an independent bookstore is positioned within its community trying to serve its particular community and its demographic. And yes, most of the communities that are in zip codes with independent bookstores are more affluent people, but they are plugged into serving those communities. Mm -hmm. And there are opportunities to like donate to nonprofits or to use something about your independent bookstore to serve the, (laughs) you know, to serve the underserved members of the community where like this is, and not that giant corporations who are serving luxury, 
Siri clientele have any obligation, but this is no this is no display of interest at all in mm. like in a community engagement thing, which is not a requirement for a bookstore. I don't believe that, but is part of the way that we think think about the place of books and the function of books in our society and the function yeah. of you know sharing knowledge in our society. And so, like maybe you're paying full price at your independent bookstore, but you feel okay about doing that because it's it the money goes into the community and that bookstore supports like you know i'll use concrete examples i buy when i'm traveling i buy a lot of the print books that i am buying now from our friend josh in portland maine at print Mm -hmm. and those are full price books that i feel much different about spending that full price 28.99 hardcover than i would about spending the exact same amount of money but in this indigo store Right. I, I guess, and I don't want to pick at this scab too much, I guess th- my next question then is, would you be better off serving the quote-unquote community, buying that same book for seventeen ninety nine on Amazon and donating $10, the, the, the difference to United Way? Sure, or getting the book from the library and donating yeah. all 29 bucks to right. United yeah, Way I just, or to a literacy I guess, organization. Is it like a rationalization it's, or is it a functional difference? Yeah, I don't I, know the answer to that question. I, 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 can, I can tell you I know it's a feelings difference. Um, it yeah. very well might not be a factual difference, right. but it definitely f- feels meaningfully different to me. And I think the reason we got there is because this store strips away that rationalization, as you sort of articulated just yeah. now. Uh, I, I'm, that that feeling's difference, mm-hmm. right? And that leaves you with just sort of the spinning molten core of books as a luxury good, well, right? And, and wondering a, what to think about it. It's a really overt reminder that there is an emotional component to the way that we shop. Yes, and certainly true. My feeling fine about a full a full price hardcover in an independent bookstore is a reflection of my values and like where my mm-hmm. what I respond to emotionally in the way that whoever set up and designed this Indigo store understands what. The emo- like what emotional response they're trying to get from a particular customer who's just not me. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's right. That's interesting. And 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 I please do click through the links. I mean, I had um, a little birdie request to be called a little birdie um, uh, as an Indigo employee in Canada, saying, "Amanda and I were speculating, is this a, a real bookstore?" And they said uh, they thought that most Indigo book book they they think of themselves as booksellers. They think of themselves as bookstores, and. So there's the, I think this is a situation where you're going to need to walk through one of these to get a sense of what the store is all about. Because um, as Jessica mentions, you know, there's a way to photograph the store where it's all non-book stuff. There's also a way to photograph the store that looks like a Barnes & Noble right. with, with different lighting. It's like, which corner um, did you stand in? So I think I'm, there's, I, I'm, this is my, I'm putting a grain of salt into my um, a bitter stew of discussing this by saying, I don't know what this actually feels like. Um, I'm making some inferences by what I'm seeing and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm reacting to it in real time to, almost because I saw it like th- three minutes before Rebecca did. <laughs> but this is kind of what it lets me think about. It's like maybe I, – I, here's, what, here's what I'll end with. I was more excited about the way forward for book retail, this indigo model, when it was more of an abstraction mm. about an anthropology that's a bookstore as well, a good one, the good booksellers. Like by all accounts, this is a wonderful retail experience. Um. I'm a little less comfortable with that being true than it was three months ago, <laughs> yeah. um, but we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. We like I certainly it more prefer this. Concept. It's better this than no bookstores. Sure. I mean, there's that. Um, but that would I rather have 600 Barnes and Nobles as is or 600 of these? That's a question I thought I would have a clearer answer to two two months ago. I'll say that. All right. Well, you know, Jeff, 
we got to move on. You better tell us about our next I, sponsor. I got to tell you a sponsor. Um, our next sponsor is, what is our next sponsor? Oh, The Great Courses Plus. One of our favorite ways to learn, besides reading, of course, is by streaming The Great Courses Plus. There, you can watch and listen to over 10,000 lectures. The Great Courses Plus kind of undersells how many. It's like plus is, yeah, plus is good. 10,000 is a bunch from award-winning experts as they explore fascinating people, places, and ideas. We recommend checking out this new course from The Great Courses Plus called Psi colon Phi, P-H-I, Science Fiction as Philosophy. Philosophy is the search for truth, and sometimes that truth is best revealed through fiction. This is a fun exploration to what can be learned from works like The Handmaid's Tale, 1984, and much more. Science fiction thinks about the future, thinks speculative. We had um, uh, Malka Older talk to me, who wrote, uh, mm-hmm. oh, Infomocracy. The, what's the name of that? I can't remember the name of her series, like what the name they use for. Anyway, but thinking about how science fiction is a way of thinking about human life from the point of view of what does not yet exist but might and what that might mean. So this course really puts that on display. That, you know, thinking about fiction of the future as who do we want to be, who are we afraid of being, who might we turn out to be that we not expect. But you can listen to that and many, all of the other 10,000 courses. Like there are 999 of them. Um, anyway, The Great Course Plus is giving our listeners a fantastic limited time offer. Get your first month free, plus receive the second month for only 99 cents. That's unlimited access to enjoy their huge library of engaging lectures for two full months for less than a buck. To get this exclusive offer, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. Limited time, greatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. Go check them out. All right. Well, speaking of less than a buck or less than a buck. exactly a buck, here is a, an interesting and fun story that came out this week. Stephen King has let some students, some teenagers, mm-hmm. option one of his stories. It's a story called Stationary Bike for the Sum of a Buck. It's a group of Welsh teenagers. Uh, they're students at the Blenau Gwent Film Academy. Mm. I very likely butchered that. Welsh is <laughs> Welsh is difficult, um, but they were granted permission to produce a film based on the story. And King has encouraged film students to adapt his stories. There's a section on his official website called Dollar Babies, and th- mm. I think this is great. It's the first that I had heard of it that lists 30 of his stories that are available for adaptation, presumably all for a dollar. Mm. And here is the like really fascinating thing. He started the program more than 40 years ago. In 1977, he says, when I started having some popular success, I saw a way to give back a little of the joy the movies have given me. Mm. That's a great story. Isn't that great? And there are other people who have done this. Um, Frank Darabont, who went on to direct the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile, started with one of the Dollar Baby stories, which is called The Woman in the Room, that he adapted into a short film in 1983. So, like, not only is this cool, but it has led to, like, big production adaptations of Stephen King's work. Um, And seems to be a really, like, a, a timely, I think, contrast to what Mm. we've seen with um, some of the stuff around like J.K. Rowling produced World of Harry Potter things and some of the uh, crackdown that the Tolkien estate has done around, Mm. um, you know, around fan works um, Mm. or people wanting to do adaptations. I think I just think this is really cool. And I was happy to just see a very cool, like very generous um, thing come out of the world of books and reading this week. 
I didn't know about this specific dollar program. I had heard from, I don't remember who, someone I know in the, you know, tangentially related to the Hollywood business talking about how King is very liberal with optioning his work. You know, not only, that's one, people love Stephen King and he has a lot of wonderful material to adapt, Mm -hmm. but also he's easy to work with in terms of not asking for a ton of money or creative control or things like that. He wants his stuff out there. I think he realizes, and, and it's turned out to be right, that his work getting adapted is just good for him. Yeah. Even if it's not, it, just, it just is. Well, he's um, prolific, so he's got yes. stuff to share, too. <laughs> right. When you got a lot of candy, you're, you're happy to give the extra large bowl on, on right, Halloween night. Right. Um, but the, it's also an elegant solution to, we talked about this and related to, I don't remember the name of the, the fan film that was about Voltimore, and it was oh, fairly highly yeah. well done. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that special deal that, the, that Warner Brothers, a.k.a. the Rolling Estate or whatever, worked out with them where they could license it, but they couldn't make any money off of it and so on and so forth. Because some of you might be thinking, why go through the, why charge these kids, a do- like why go through, just let them do it. Well, here's the, here's the mm-hmm. wonky thing about American copyright. If you don't, protect your copyright you effectively give it up right so you, if you don't go and say if you don't say this is officially licensed and people can just do whatever with any of your work or even some of your work essentially you're saying the law says now i might have this wrong but i think i have this right that's now essentially in the public domain you don't care enough to protect it so anyone can do whatever with whatever they want with it so you've got to do these weird things like granting a license for a dollar so that if someone else plagiarizes you or steals your stuff they can't say well he doesn't care about his copyright look at all this other junk you say actually that's all officially licensed and I don't remember the details of this, so I don't want to name the location or whatever, but there was a, there was a Harry Potter-related fan fest somewhere that had used a phrase that is copyrighted without permission, and they got a letter and a cease and desist or something from Warner Brothers, and everyone's like, well, this, aren't they being jerks? And I'm like, I didn't say this because no one cares, but I, was, I, I, real, I realized that probably the generous reading is what they're doing is they have to do it or else you know, they mm-hmm. essentially give up copyright. So. Yeah. It's not the big bads problem necessarily. We could do these things a little bit different, but this is one thing that happens. But there's a mechanism to make it easy um, for people and students, especially to mm-hmm. adapt. I think is a wonderful. I think it's. I think it's cagey. <laughs> starters i think it and generous which is my favorite thing well, cagey and generous well, that's and what you, i want to be I mean, right you know that stephen king is glad from the results of the shawshank redemption and the green mile that he let yeah. frank darabont option the woman in the right. or at, adapt the woman in the right. room before point. Yeah. <laughs> like he has to be glad that he's done that if that was the only example to come out of this mm-hmm. it would alone be reason enough to continue with this program just for the chance that something might like that might happen again if you're doing it for not just generous but also cagey reasons and i think it's fine to be both cagey yes. and generous there's no harm here if you are a film student or somebody looking for a film project yeah. and you like stephen king there's a lot of material there um, i just thought that was super interesting and it's so cool that i'm surprised we haven't heard about it before I'm surprised too. Um, it makes me think that people, that authors, that a already have a um, metric uh, crap ton of money. That's an official uh, tax bracket. Crap ton of money. We refer to um, that as and, Scrooge McDucking. <laughs> yes, right. That you can swim in it mm-hmm. um, and have a big back catalog. It'd be curious. It'd be interesting to see them do something similar. Um, you know, it'd be a nice model for you know nonprofit educational or other sort of um, community sort of productions of this stuff to get out there, give people a chance to 
uh, experiment with adapting someone else's work without having to do the the hard the the non creative part of like buying the rights, <laughs> spending spending twenty thousand dollars to the right to maybe make a movie out of something really interesting there. I wanted, I, we want to do one more shout out of listener feedback about the Barnes and Noble concept store over there in Maryland. Got a couple more reports there. Glowing reports, glowing. And we've talked about this a little bit. The, the, the observation that I wanted to highlight here that I thought was really interesting to think about from my point of view is what these stores are different is a lot of the displays they said were movable and overtly. So the oh. tables that were on rollers, a lot of the stacks, like the, I don't even know what you call them, those double-sided stack kind of shelves. A lot of those were, move, were movable for, A, for events, but also different you know, seasonality kinds of things, different kinds of displays. So there, it's an experiment within the experiment. You can, you can try different things within the experiment itself, which I thought was great. Oh, I like that a lot. And they said the flow, like you're, the, the stores encourage you to go down sort of the runway of the middle to look at the face-out, cover-up, you know, on ta- like on-table books, and as you wander around that, you kind of experience the whole store as you snake your way between table and table. It kind of leads you um, with bookish breadcrumbs to go from one table to the next to exp- get all the way to the back of the store, which that customer flow, I think I think you and I even explicitly talked about how some of the Barnes & Nobles have all the tables up front mm-hmm. and there's the cashier and then there's like the dark and spooky catacombs of the <laughs> shelves where no one is in the back <laughs> and you have to go through that to get to the bathroom. You know, most yep. people probably only go through them to get to the bathroom there. Um, but thank you for those continued reports there. We'd like, if anyone else also make it to the um, the Short Hills Indigo, uh, Jessica's report here is copious but not authoritative necessarily. So additional um, uh, uh, reports there would be most welcome. I, I should do another sponsor. I think you should. We, we got, we're going to get to our number one story of the number one bookish news story of the week. We're going to, we're going to end on there. Um, thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance and comfort. Bombus are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. It's a story that hasn't, has, has been well towed. I guess Jeff. history of feet with art support system that provides extra support where you need it most in a cushion footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness. Bombas feel like a hug around your foot. Not to mention Bombas stay up technology ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark. And the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take them off. So whether you're a runner, power walker or power lounger or all three, you know, different times of day require different power moves. There's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life. I'm wearing them right now. Rebecca, you said you're wearing your Bombas socks right now. I am. If I, I don't have exclusively Bombas, but I can tell you this. If I've got clean Bombas in my drawer, they get picked out first. Yes. You know, I'm, I think maybe it was on all the books I was saying, like, I just, I hate wearing shoes. I hate wearing socks. I want to be barefoot as much as possible all the time. And Bombas have converted me. <laughs> that mm. like It's the little hug around the foot technology <laughs> that yes. it just feels nice to have them on. And I'm not a runner, walker, power lounger, but I'm a hiker and power lounger. And I have worn them hiking. I have worn them on lots of walks. I'm wearing the no-show ones right now. I've been wearing mm. them with my chucks. Um, they're super comfortable. And they do have like the no-show ones have these nice little um, grippy things on the in, like grippy strippy things on the inside of the heel that keep your no-show socks yes. from getting pulled down into your shoes, which is a problem that I've had with every other kind of no-show sock that I have tried. It's yeah. Like I did not know. Maybe this is what being thirty-five is—is is having like really <laughs> strong opinions about socks. Mm. Um, but I have them, and they are that Bombas are great. There you go. Bombas.com/slash/bookriot 
and you'll get twenty percent off your first order. That's Bombas B O M B A S dot com slash Book Riot. Use code Book Riot. Twenty percent off your first order. We have three minutes for our big story of the week, <laughs> which is we have a winner in the Great American Read, and it is To Kill a Mockingbird. And um, we don't even need three minutes. <laughs> that's our show this week. Thank you. No, I, we knew this was going to happen. <laughs> we called it. Everyone called paying it attention earlier. to books. Everyone called knows it. this. It's just, not a surprise. The top ten were all by white people. Yeah. Not even all but, of oh, them wait, by wait, Americans. Wait, we about that. You, you didn't listen to last week. Gabaldon Don is her racial identity is more complicated than just oh, that. So okay, go, well go I stand corrected. It. Yeah, so it's not it's not that simple. Um, but the list is the list. And you know? of course, To Kill a Mockingbird one. Like I was um, reading um, this week, I bought a bibliophile by Jane Mount, who's done the Ideal Bookshelf, which is, mm-hmm. I don't even know how to describe that book. I, I could probably do it a little bit better if I had thought about it all beforehand. But she did a, she does these, started out Ideal Bookshelf as these, she do drawings of book spines, you know, a stack of your favorite books. You could commission it just for you. And she, one of the images in this bibliophile book, which is kind of like, I don't know, uh, a really pretty literary miscellany about a different, a bunch of different book-related things with her own illustrations. But one of the first illustrations in it is the most requested book spines to have on their your personal ideal bookshelf portrait, mm-hmm. and it lines up almost exactly with these top ten. The, Not the, diff, the only different one is Gatsby, which I thought I would have expected to see in this top ten list. Yeah. But To Kill a Mockingbird was number one on the top of that stack. So good read. You know, if you've done this, you knew you know how this goes. You know. It's not that interesting. I guess it could be a worse choice. Amanda in our Slack today said, you know, at the time it was radical um, to have people think about systemic racism in 1961. Uh, I can't remember. Is it 54 in the movies? I can't. None of my dates are all messed up. But mid-century, mm-hmm. you know, it's told by in its particular way. There's problems with it. You know, it's not. It could be worse. It could be more interesting. Like, you know, I think where I'm at with it is, of course, this is what won right now, given what the American populace who are voting in PBS yeah, right. <laughs> voting things looks like. But if they do this again in 30 years and To Kill a Mockingbird is still winning, then I will think we have, you know, well, that's, something going on. It's going to win in 30 years. But I, I don't think so. Like, do you think there's what's the, going to take over it? HP? Like, it, when I don't think that our generation has the romanticism around it that like our parents and older readers do. Well, it's not even romanticism. It's just as you said in our Slack, it's availability. That's true. Like we read it. Well, we read maybe it. it'll be assigned less often. I hope it'll be assigned less often. Anyway, I just don't know. Yeah, I I, I have hope because it's in a curriculum more, and it did make I think the top thirty list here. Um, you know. We we all might have our fantasy pick, like what could you know what we'd like to win, but then there's what could actually win. That's right. like you know that's a dark horse, but actually in the race, I think their eyes were watching. God would be the one where it gets assigned enough now. It's mm-hmm. been around enough now. Hurston herself has some juice. Like she's a cultural figure that maybe in thirty years that's the one that yeah. could take over to kill him. I think there's some possibility for that. It feels to me like we're really in a moment where we're redefining what it yep. is for a story to be an American story. And 
I think that, you know, aside from availability bias, if in 30 years, the thing that pops into our minds when someone asks us about a great American story is still To Kill a Mockingbird, like, I'm concerned about that. Um, yeah. But there are obviously all those Well, I don't, I mean, these aren't even that, these aren't even that strict. This is just like, what's your favorite book? That's, I don't think it asks people like about, just that you are right. voting and you are an American makes it the great American read. Because, you know, The Lord of the Rings and Jane Eyre, like, they're not American by any stretch of the imagination. Um, one reader did, did write in to say, notice that all all of the finalists have a serious or multiple serious liter- film or TV adaptations. Mm-hmm. And she said the one that kind of got under the wire was Outlander. And she says, if there had been no Outlander show, does Outlander make the list? Oh, it's a good and, point. And she said, probably not. And I said, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I think so maybe right. one, there was, I think there was like a made for TV there. I was watching God with Halle Berry. I don't know that that, may, that rises to the level of being a good sort of popular adaptation. So yeah. maybe that, if we want to change the story about our story, we need a, a big budget or, or like a, a, a limited series. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Showtime, get on. It's uh, time for a readaptation God. of their Yeah, eyes time for a readaptation. That's our show this week, Rebecca. Thank you so much um, for all of your well meant and interesting comments, especially about Indigo. I think we, had, we, we, we helped some people today think about that. I, I'm I fascinated so. by the whole thing. Um, to send us your thoughts. What, what you thought about Indigo yourself, what you thought about this slideshow. And if you say anything other than that, his slideshow was awesome. <laughs> Don't I tell immediately us. delete your email. But if you have thoughts about Indigo itself, um, our interpretations, other thoughts, I'd sure like continuing to think about this. This isn't going away. Um, podcast at bookriot.com. Till next time. Have a good one.